This episode is brought to you by Huggies Little Movers. Huggies knows that babies come in all shapes and sizes, and your tushies do too. Huggies Little Movers is their best-fitting diaper ever with its curved and stretchy fit. Babies, no matter what kind of butt you've got, you'll feel comfy while your mushy little tushy wiggles and jiggles all around. Huggies Little Movers are curved with up to 12-hour protection against leaks. Get your baby butt in Huggies best-fitting diaper. Huggies Little Movers. We got you, baby. Yo, next round is about to start. You ready? Yeah, yeah, just shopping for a car in Carvana. For real? Yeah, Carvana makes it super convenient to shop whenever, wherever. For real? That's a ton of car options. Yep, and these are all within my price range. For really real? You can afford that? Yeah, with Carvana. And boom, just like that, I'm getting it delivered in a couple days. For really, really real? You just bought a car. For real, and you just lost. My turn. Visit Carvana.com to shop for thousands of vehicles under $20,000. Thanks for listening to the Dr. Drew Podcast on Podcast One. I'm Dave Detman, also known as Dr. Get. I've got a new podcast called The Big Idea. And every week I talk to inventors and visionaries who made it big in their respective industries. We'll tackle weekly trending tech, provide inside tips for your success, and go deep dives on the latest and greatest innovations. And I know you're going to love this part. I'll also have plenty of free giveaways. Who doesn't love free stuff? So listen to and follow The Big Idea with me, Dr. Gadget, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podcast One, and wherever you get your podcasts. Well, if you've been thinking about a backyard makeover, maybe you thought you had room for a pool. Well, you're going to love this idea. Get a Michael Phelps Swim Spa by Master Spas. That's right. The Michael Phelps Swim Spa combines the benefits of a pool with therapy of a hot tub. Michael Phelps Swim Spas by Master Spas have water currents, so you can swim, do aquatic exercise. And, of course, the water buoyancy will relieve pressure on aching joints and for... Um, some of these, you know, it can be an important thing. Michael Phelps Swim Spas are 100% made in the USA by Master Spas, the world's largest swim spa manufacturer. And you're going to love it. Go to masterspas.com, put in the promo code DREW to save $1,000 on a Michael Phelps Swim Spa or $500 on a Master Spas hot tub. That is masterspas.com, promo code DREW. <laughs> This episode is brought to you by Huggies Little Movers. Huggies knows that babies come in all shapes and sizes, and your tushies do too. Huggies Little Movers is their best-fitting diaper ever with its curved and stretchy fit. Babies, no matter what kind of butt you've got, you'll feel comfy while your mushy little tushy wiggles and jiggles all around. Huggies Little Movers are curved with up to 12-hour protection against leaks. Get your baby butt in Huggies Best-Fitting Diaper. Huggies Little Movers. We got you, baby. Shall I take your order, or do you need a minute? Yes, I'll be ready. Just buying a car on Carvana. What? It's super convenient. I already got pre-qualified in two minutes. All I had to do was answer a few questions. What? That's handy. Yeah. Now I'm customizing my down and monthly payments. What? That's an exquisite deal. And just like that, Carvana's delivering my car in a couple days. What? Oh, yeah. Uh, sorry. I'll have the burrito. Visit Carvana.com to finance your next car. Financing subject to credit approval. Delivery fees may apply. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Dr. Podcast. We appreciate you supporting us and supporting the people that support us, in fact. Uh, if you have any ideas for guests, people you'd like me to talk to, uh, you can send them over to contact at drdrew.com. Gary, I've been thinking of, I've been interesting. I've been interviewing so many interesting people over at the drdrew.tv streaming show. I'm thinking about sending some people over here. It's, it's interesting to me how 
These are different sort of environments. It's so interesting how TV, radio, streaming, and podcasting are each different environments. And the kind of conversation I have with somebody when there's a camera rolling is different than the kind of intimate thing that goes on in a podcast. Yeah, right? absolutely. I mean, it changes the nature of it. In fact, I was talking to some, somebody who was trying to get me to do um, a pre-interview today, and I was like, dude, that is the sure way to spoil a conversation. You know what I mean? People are so counterintuitive that that a podcast is about the conversation and hanging out and letting things flow, not pre-interviewing. That's t- that's bad television, frankly. It's also just bad legacy Hollywood because when yeah, you yeah. are dealing with someone yeah. who has their own podcast, you never get that. But when you're dealing with a PR person, you get, can I get some sample questions? And it's like, I have a form email written out for your show specifically that basically says, no, F off. It's a conversation. It evolves. Would you send that to me? I need to send it to this person that's trying to get me to do an pre-interview. I'm like, this is a bad idea. I sure. wish you'd reconsider it. Okay. Anyway, today my guest is Evan Haynes. Uh, this is his first appearance here, though we spoke to your wife 10 years ago. We were just starting this podcast. He is the founder, brains behind, co-founder, Oro House, co-founder Oro House Recovery Centers, named Best Addiction Treatment Center in California by Newsweek. Uh, He has in-network treatment for uh, co-occurring disorders, and he's written a book with my buddy Bob Forrest, Can America Recover? Reimagining the Drug Problem, which I really want to kind of start with that book, if you don't mind. Uh, You can find out more at Oro Recovery, O-R-O Recovery.com. Also follow Evan at Instagram, on Instagram, at It's Evan Haynes, H-A-I-N-E-S. And uh, yeah, let's talk about the book first. That's what I want to talk about first. What 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 are you guys telling people in that book? Well, good question. So, I mean, it's it's the continuation of a ten year dialogue with Bob. Who you too? Yeah, right. <laughs> Does he call you regularly and, and, All the time. and express frustration if he's driving somewhere? I think. <laughs> yes, yeah. yes. Well, Joshua Tree. Joshua he's always Tree. Driving Joshua Tree. <laughs> well, now he lives in Claremont, so he's always driving somewhere. He, he is, and, yeah. and and these That's conversations so began almost immediately. Yeah. You know, they've they've never been shorter than like an hour. And mm-hmm. he he woke me up. I mean, when we started, when he met us, we were trying to do this like kind of high-end thing in Malibu. Oh, yeah. We, we were concerned with uh, thread counts. Oh, and no, yeah. He, he just instantly uh, made this fascinating yeah. by asking questions and yeah. kind of challenging, I think, a lot of the conventional thinking around addiction and addiction treatment. Yeah. We, I, I, do you know his and my background? Of course. We, we, so, so we had a program that was inpatient. It was an in, like in a hospital. And we could do comprehensive services no matter how ill the patient, no matter how profound their medical and psychiatric needs. We could treat somebody for a month for $3,500. Amazing. In a hospital. Right. And so when I see all these $30,000 in the thread counts, like, what the hell? Oh, I know. That's not what they need. Now, he, so he was reared on that. He was. And he also made our – he made and, us and, feel – by the way, we were eventually kicked out of the hospital because it's bad business. Right. Not, not good business to give it on a cost-effective basis. In, yeah, and insurance companies now would almost rather pay to do it in a home setting like we do because it is uh, less expensive. But he also made us feel better about it too in some ways because what, what I hadn't thought of is we were living in the house. We were there 24-7. A lot of those first clients who came through, we were a simple sober living at the time. Mm. They're doing great. They wanted to become therapists, oh, go back to school, start their own businesses. 
So we you were doing something right. That's we were sure. doing something right. And it seemed to be this kind of connection, this community. And we had very few rules, which he gravi- uh, gravitated uh, toward. Uh, oh, he liked that. He liked that at the time. I mean, we built, of course, rules over time. Yeah. And each rule I can peg to a specific individual and an incident. Yeah, yeah. You know, I could almost name it after a person. But he liked that we were uh, kind of hands off. It's like when you're cooking fish. You just want to mm-hmm. flip it one time and mm-hmm. kind of less is more. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and yeah, it just began this – of course, he's an intense social critic. So the book becomes a statement less about addicted people as individuals and more about America. So, oh, that's so funny. And of course – It's funny, not, not ha-ha, but funny uh, – somewhat sense. ha-ha because he calls me and complains about that shit all the time. Well, well exactly. And so, <laughs> so it, it, it becomes and, – and my background actually is in urban planning. That's mm. where I did my yeah. master's. Oh, I've that's interesting. recently gone back to school. Uh, to get my doctorate in psychology, but yeah. I'm going to always kind of bring that with me, this kind of nice. uh, utopian idealism, mm. too, that, that I've... In, We've come quite a distance from that these days in this particular this city. We have, and, and so, you know, at 47 years old, I've, I've realized I'm not going to get rid of that kind of Don Quixote tilting at windmills type of character that I am. I'm going to embrace it, and I'm going to see if we can't somehow combine it with... Well, how we understand addiction. Have you heard of the Trieste model? I, I love it. Exactly. Yeah, that's that. That's exactly. what that is. It's right? in the book. Okay. Yeah. And, and so, and what we're talking about for those listening who are not familiar with it is essentially building communities and, and giving people ways to move through those community structures that include psychiatric and medical care, but ultimately skills for thriving. Yeah. Uh, an environment for thriving at the same time, and you know, as opposed, to, I, I can't even talk about what we're doing now. It just makes me ill. Well, and and, and it, it is all connected. So, for how long in kind of mental health were we trying to get our patients to kind of adapt, to adapt to the environment, to adapt to the culture, the society we live in? Well, when the culture and society we live in is kind of deeply troubled itself, mm-hmm. uh, where there's almost, I mean, like a mass psychosis going on in the country, in the right, world, right? Um, and one and then two, we realize we build the society. So we're we're maybe shifting our focus, or maybe we ought to shift our focus from less how we have somebody make somebody adapt to this, and how we maybe create a new world. Where, like, um, who is it that Dr. Uh, Briere at USC uh, School of Medicine? He says, for example, if we could reduce or eliminate. Uh, uh, childhood abuse and neglect. Oh, that would, take, could, that would that would do it all. That would take most of this. Right. We, would, we, uh, everything you're seeing today would not be here. Would not be for average childhood experiences. Everything. everything. Homeless, drug addiction, mass psychosis, panic disorder. Right. Everything. He and says, not, not uh, that there wouldn't be psychiatric illness, but that the magnitude and the extreme presence of these rather serious psychiatric pathologies. He has a great line. He says we would reduce the DSM, you know, 800 pages to yeah, the size of a pamphlet in two generations. Mm. Well, um, it's been proposed many times over the years. I remember when I was um, at the, you know, I worked for decades at a psychiatric hospital, and I was given an office. That was uh, occupied by an old psychoanalyst from the 40s. And he had an old library and I used to just behind me and I would just sort of thumb through it once in a while. And many of the books were filled with, you know, descriptions of exactly what you're talking about going, when are we going to learn? When are we going to st- stop pretending this is just a choice or a, a social trend? This is serious right. contributor to psychopathology. And it's psychopathological to treat children like right, this. Right. So it's been around for a long well, it's time. It's only gotten worse. It's only gotten worse. And and when I first started 
when we first started writing the book, you know, trauma is obviously this big kind of uh, you know, keyword these days, buzzword. And uh, what I realized though is, and now being back in school, uh, they've been they were talking about trauma 100, 120 years ago, yeah, Freud, Freud in the Vienna Circle. Yes. That's and, what I'm telling you. The books behind me well, were from the the turn of the century. Well, exactly. Century. So this is nothing new. And what was so interesting about Freud? He had his uh, whole uh, seduction theory, yeah, yeah. and he had these like I think eighteen patients, and each of them had been sexually abused. Yeah, but he couldn't believe it. Children, he couldn't believe he could, it. He just, so he turned it into something else. He turned it into something else. So, <laughs> so it was only uh, it's a, only appeared recently. These letters he was writing to a friend. He goes, I just don't believe it's possible, despite the fact that his own dad had uh, sexually molested his own siblings. Oh no shit, I didn't know that. Oh, yes. that's interesting. And that's another wrinkle knowing in his that, history. Still not Woo! believing it's possible. So the oh, denial runs deep. Fascinating. Yeah. yeah, denial itself is an interesting topic because I, I think people think of it as a cognitive process. In other words, I don't want to agree to something or I don't want to look at something. Denial has become a much more profound process that is in charge of psychiatric care right now, which is one of my grave concerns. I've started to call denial anisognosia. Mm. And anisognosia is an old neurological term, again, from the turn of the 20th century. A guy named Babinski invented it. It's well known in neurology. Uh, it was coined to, ref- to describe what happens to people that have a right middle cerebral artery stroke where their sensory and motor system of the left side of the body goes out. There's something about how the right-handed brain is configured is such that when the left side of the motor in the sensory cortex goes out from that particular vascular distribution, you also lose left-sidedness. Everything left goes away. And so if if you've had a right middle cerebral artery stroke and I tell you to draw a clock, you'll put all the numbers on the right side. So left just doesn't exist. Same thing is so of the left side of the body. They, they, you can you can hold the hand up of the person with this stroke and go, what's this? They go, uh, it's a, a hand anyway, and it'll flop down. They won't have no awareness that it's their hand. The the left doesn't exist, and that was the the term he coined was anisognosia, and it's clear to me that there are many kinds of anisognosias, much like there are many aphasias, uh, and I could go on about Bruce Willis's thing at some point if people want me to. I'll do that on the Adam and Drew show. Um, but anisognosia, it, it, denial becomes so deep that it's biological right. is what I'm saying. And if, you, if you have – you know, I, I, <laughs> I became convinced of that years ago when I was working again in the hospital. And my charge nurse and I would go in the hospital we, in the, the room to see a new patient. And we'd always – I'd always want to know why they're there, what their motivation is. So I can – you know, if, if they just nearly died or something or believed they were going to die, I knew I was going to have a different person than somebody – than their wife sent them in. That's a different motivational state. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I, I'd have to sort of adjust my interventions accordingly, but a lot of people would come in in total denial about what they came in with, what brought them in, like right. really massive de- to the point where I we'd amuse ourselves with it, uh, and I'd go, hey, Mr. Smith, why are you here?" And it's always. Oh, you have no idea how bad it is. I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired. I, I'm ruining the life of my kids and I can't do this anymore and I'm just sick and it's just blah, blah, blah. And I open the chart and this person was literally brought in in shackles from the courtroom. Did the court have anything to do with it? Oh, yeah, the court. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The court, the judge sent me, but but that's not really why I'm here. It's like, really? Right. That's anisognosia. Well, that's and, a level of denial. Well, exactly. And the presenting problem is never the problem. And I, I, I personally take like a Jungian 
depth psychology approach. So um, Marie-Louise von Franz's right-hand woman, she would talk about the shadow. And um, obviously in addiction, there's parts of ourselves we just can't look at. But of course, there's also a collective or even a national shadow. And, and so You're again, talking about this in the book? Uh, yeah, I think so. Okay, keep going. And so um, she, she uses the example of the Oxford groups, which are basically like the precursor to Alcoholics Anonymous. And she says someone will stand up and in this group of people and say, I'm selfish, I drink too much. But she says they don't believe it. They can say that. So even when we do pay lip service to the things that are supposedly our problem, a true encounter with the shadow is so difficult. The things we reject uh, and deny about ourselves is so difficult. It's basically impossible. And well, she would argue you can only do it in years of analysis, probably. But um, again, being kind of his background with geography and city planning and seeing how addiction really fits into that and and seeing this parallel between the addict, the addicted uh, individual, and really, in a way, America itself, where we have this uh, kind of national shadow, we actually end up, and this is one of the arguments we make in the book, and I, I kind of veered off from, you know, Bob's thinking, I'm not sure how far he endorses this theory, but that we basically use addicted people, and even homeless people, I think, to a degree, as uh, scapegoats, but as Proxies. A, as a proxy, as a drug. There's something about uh, them that it, literally the scapegoat. And in yeah. fact, what's so interesting in ancient Greek, the, the word uh, pharmakon for drug meant drug. It meant the antidote to the drug, a poison, antidote to the poison or a potion, a spell even. But also pharmakos was their word for scapegoat. So they would put all the community – it was a purgative for uh, the actual community itself. Yeah. So it was a drug in that sense. They would put all the troubles on the scapegoat or they would actually um, expel a, a real human being. They would take the person's name. Uh, even from them. So, I mean, they'd be dead. They'd be dead. Right. But that um, the the problems of the community go onto the scapegoat and that's sent out into the desert. And I argue that we're using drug addicts for that purpose, that everything we say about them, because that's what we do when we project a shadow. We um, usually uh, talk about it in moral terms uh, of somebody else, mm-hmm. that someone else has this or that problem. Mm-hmm. It's always our own problem. So everything we say about addicted people in America, I would argue, uh, is something that's true about America itself. So there's a lot packed into yeah. that. So I want to sort of tease some of that apart. Um, let me just start with the easy parts of this. I sometimes look at uh, homeless and drug addicts and I think – Man, those are the guys that would have gone out into the frontier when we had a yeah. frontier. Or jumped a freight train. That's or right. And so, and so that was an asset in that yeah. particular environment, and now that asset has become a liability. And we have more than scapegoated, we have ostracized. Yeah. I think ostracism yeah. is the word, which is also something that used to be practiced in Greece. And ostracism had a more global quality than scapegoating. Scapegoating usually – and you ever heard of Rene Girard? Do you know who he yeah. is? Rene Girard uh, he, he sort of invented this – he's actually a literary theorist, but this idea of mimetic passions. And his, he's got a whole theory and I, I, I don't adhere to all of it. But he opened the door to this idea of people joining together to focus their aggressions on one. Right. So they don't tear each other apart, essentially. And so they also don't confront the shadow. Right. Right. Exactly. They put it all on the one. And 
what scapegoating usually includes is elevating somebody to a very high status and then knocking them down. Interesting. The, and and the, the the prima the the prima I don't have a strong enough word. The best example of scapegoating for me is the Aztecs every morning uh, when they make somebody sacred and then sacrifice them. Right. And then everyone can go about their business without killing each other. They – I hope you don't mind me getting a little long-winded here because no, this please. is all fascinating mm-hmm. stuff to me. They had a thing called the Codex for Child Rearing, which was how to raise children, which was a systematic pattern of abuse, severe abuse because they needed to create great – Warriors, right? That was the value that they were going for. But when you abuse the shit violently out of kids, they are violent when they grow up, and you got to deal with that violence every day by killing somebody, mm-hmm. focusing it all over there, and then we can get on about our business. Mm-hmm. So scapegoating is something that emerges in systems of childhood abuse. Mm-hmm. And narcissism, mm-hmm. right? Because abuse, as you know, cuts off parts of ourselves from ourself. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes there's an aggressive, dark piece kind of left behind that, as you say, we can't get at. I disagree with that psychoanalyst. I know why she would say that because you rarely see people actually address it in real life. I see it all the time in addiction. Mm-hmm. Addiction recovery. Well, they're often the only people brave enough to even begin to do it. Well, they have to do it they or they'll die. To. They have to. And they know it, so they do it. So it's the only time I routinely see massive personality changes yeah. because they'll dig into whatever they have to dig into to do it. And by the way, let's remind ourselves, one of the mechanisms that they're able to do so is that community around right. them. Right. Which is back to your point about building community. Well, and we say in the book, we're, we're arguing we've turned addicted people in this book into heroic figures. They could literally show the rest of us who are so lost and stuck and don't know how to clean up after ourselves. I mean, uh, again, that's uh, that. Uh, addicts in recovery or addicts using? Addicts in recovery. Yeah, yeah, of yeah. Course. They are heroes. They I are. agree with that. It's amazing. Told, no one else told, can do that. I no totally one else agree is with brave that. enough. I, I even, um, even at a treatment center, there's uh, young people, they're working on like cleaning up their debt and all this. They're often doing things that I'm too scared to do yeah. or unable to do. Uh, it's remarkable. Oh, it's inspiring, yeah, right? You see miracles, right? Yeah. And, and so that's why I like working in the field and, and not everyone gets there, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's, and it's often uncanny who does and who doesn't. Right? I yeah. mean, I can't predict right. anymore. It's like the ones that do keep me going. <laughs> well, and the ones who succeed are often the ones voted least likely to Oftentimes. succeed. Oftentimes. And, and, and that too shows something like I know, again, trauma is this kind of buzzword, but one of the big questions, you know, Bob posed for the book is like, okay, then what? Then what? You know, because, then what meaning like what? Well, we, we can get locked into this kind of trauma paradigm where right, – Because then you have just victims. Right. It becomes an excuse yes. rather than an explanation. Y- yes. And if it's an explanation – Same with addiction. Well, true. Yeah. And if it's an explanation, that's great. But then what? And yeah. uh, uh, there's one um, interesting uh, – another Jungian fellow, James Hillman. I don't know if you're familiar with him. Mm-hmm. But he talked about uh, in this book he wrote called The Soul's Code um, that he called it the parental fallacy. So he's talking about and it reminded me when you were talking about the Aztecs that you know it, trauma can become its own kind of determinism, almost like a genetic determinism. Oh, yeah. The adverse childhood experience studies can become just well, you plug this 
uh, inputs in and you're going to get this out. Well, and I think there's some neurology in that because people repeat their traumas. They just do do it. They they enact them. So so Hillman says it's the parental fallacy. It creates victims and that – like you said with the Aztecs, that there's so many compensatory figures and he, uh, or uh, factors rather, and he uses a number of historical figures to show these people who had the most difficult lives. They they were they were short. They were picked on. What whatever well, their, their the parents other. were awful. Well, they can become the Hitler <laughs> right. or the Napoleon. He uses those examples right. too, right. which he calls like the bad apple. But often they became these <coughs> incredible. Incredibly successful visionary well, and so, figures, and so correct. Yeah. And the way I kind of see that is, oftentimes it's in an alcoholic family setting or a drug addicted family setting, uh, and it's it's a high stakes game because when and and parents will point at that and go, "See, look what your brother was able to do. He became Steve Jobs right. or whatever." And it goes one of two ways. You either become a down-and-out drug addict or you become the hero. So it's the right. scapegoat and the hero again. It's the family systems too. But the scapegoat yeah. hero right, thing right. is right there in the family. Right. And yeah. that's what we're doing as a society all over again. And One thing Jung says when, when he was writing the Red Book and descending into the underworld, he says, kill, kill the hero. I think a lot of the hero narratives can be so harmful. Well, there, there's something uh, humbling or there's a surrender to something larger when we say like, God, I, I can't be the hero anymore or I'm not the hero I thought I was because I have a dark side too. Correct. Yeah. And and I think that is weird. We got here so fast. Yeah. I think that is the core dynamic in the world today. Just yesterday, I interviewed very interesting woman who is a secret service agent, a woman of service and spiritual, all kinds of just strength. And she goes, what I see everywhere is people insisting about on being a hero. And the bigger villain, villain you make, you create, you make everybody else, the bigger a hero you right. can be. So it, and, the, and that is sort of – that's kind of Jungian. It's also uh, – Hegelian, yeah. Because you create the hero to get the, create the villain to be the hero to get the and, antithesis to hopefully get the synthesis. And both are fucked yeah. up. Yeah, both are fucked. And we up. need the third thing. We need to find a third way, and that's what we've been trying to do at Oro House is to find that synthesis between these often diametrically opposed views that you know in many cases both are wrong. Yes, both. Not yeah. many cases, <laughs> but but unfortunately, some the, unfortunately. Yeah. People find ways to make them work for them, right? And so they're unwilling to give them up. I mean, obviously, the hero gets a lot of stuff for being the hero, and and that really, the hero is just a co- severe codependent right. with a lot of pers- a lot of narcissism. But it's covert narcissism, right. right? I'm a caretaking person. I do all this for everybody else. In reality, it's my pain I'm operating from, and I see the pain on everybody else. It's not their pain I'm worried about. It's my pain, even right. though I can't differentiate right. my pain from their pain. That's real codependency. Yeah. Raising my hand. Fascinating. Uh, Drew, I I'm a codependent. Yeah. Um, it's resonating. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, that's real. That, and that's why codependency is so hard to tease apart. It's, it's a microsurgery to get those boundaries right. Well, I almost think we should embrace it in a way. Perhaps this, it, this it could be – Well, uh, narcissism, I mean that boundaries might be impossible or that uh, I guess in this case we're talking about fusions. Yeah, uh, yeah. Keep going. We're talking about relationships. So yeah. we imagine, for example, that like nature and culture are these totally diametrically opposed no, things. Right. I don't they're think they fused are. fused together. Because yeah. we'll, we'll purify those two things from each other and meanwhile we'll be combining them constantly. Yep. And so it, it, reality is created out of a set of relationships and I think we just don't give enough – pay enough care and attention to the relationship. Um, oh man, hold on. Yeah, that's a profound statement. Well, it is. I mean, reality I happen- out of relationships. I right. I have always said 
self and regulation of emotions comes come out of relationship. They do. But we develop human development occurs out of relationships. Oh, hundred. But reality itself, it goes. Well, that's deeper. that's the part. That's the jump I had never made. I got to give yeah. that a lot of thought. So that's interesting because I've been thinking a lot these days about how distorted our cognitions are. I mean, I, I do a regular thing here with a cognitive psychologist on this pod, and he just brings up all the different cognitive biases and distortions and stuff, and, and I, I just see them now everywhere. Don't know what to do about it. What do we do about it? We start to notice them, um, but, you know, we become lost in the funhouse in a way. I think <laughs> we don't beat ourselves up. I mean, even, you know, we can put our hands up. We're narcissistic. It was, it was Winnicott and Cahoot, I think, who said narcissism isn't actually necessarily a bad thing. In fact, it can lead to a lot of confidence and creativity later in life. The child who imagines it can snap its finger and milk will, will just appear. Yeah. I mean, they talk a lot about manifesting and stuff nowadays. I mean, that's what that is. You can manifest anything. Um, but the child who wasn't given the milk who was who, or who was shut down um, that can be a huge problem and also it can become uh, malignant where we may indeed be the center of the universe but we don't understand that so is everybody else and so it, it becomes again about relationships it becomes about bridge building between all these different centers of the universe so so t- this is – were you in psychoanalysis? Were you psychoanalyzed yourself? I am currently as part of school. I have to be. So finally. You're, you're an analyst. Yeah. Because uh-huh. yeah, this, this is – you're speaking from a very specific orientation yeah. that fascinates me. Um, so take that now to the – you're still at the level of the individual. Now mm-hmm. take me up to the society level if you can. Well, so – well, one, we might live in a narcissistic we do. culture, but we we're also do. live in one of the most inventive, we creative do. cultures and, and, you know, that can do and, anything. But we're, we're eating ourselves, we're right? Eating the, ourselves the dark, we're eating ourselves. We're seeing the dark side in others, right. which is the error. So well, we, not an error. It might be there, but it's an error to act out on it, I guess. Well, exactly. So we accuse people of, of everything. Me and Bob have this conversation all the time, like we're you know giving so-and-so a hard time, some individual we're putting all of our again our shadow onto that person meanwhile we're all involved in child slavery for example uh there's there's even a um what's his name i I used to watch msnbc all the time and there's there's a contributor he worked for obama he was like the uh forgetting his name i'm letting him off the hook Mm. because uh he was literally just a few months ago arguing in front of the supreme court on behalf of nestle usa and cargill that they should not be held accountable for child slaves little kids who were basically abducted from mali Uh. and taken to the ivory coast to Uh. work on cocoa plantations where 40 percent of the world's cocoa comes from they were tortured abused obviously enslaved it's occurring with uh, palm oil so it's like anyone who eats food is involved so we're all involved and again i think relationships we look back to the quality of those relationships and say do i want to be involved or as a world do we want to be involved in a world that enslaves that tortures and abuses children i say no uh, well, i think that's a kind of an easy one <laughs> uh, but it's prevalent like it's everywhere neil neil could catch y'all yeah that's yeah, him thank yeah. you that's not me that's gary gary got it yeah thank you and um, and 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 that went like totally uh gone in one news cycle we're giving who a hard time meanwhile this fellow i suppose for a paycheck or maybe he feels sorry for nestle usa or cargill well let's because we should be able to extrapolate from that and not just focus on him no we should we, yeah. should, we should which is that we're all involved and to but, even but, point our finger at him it somehow exonerates us or, uh, from, from that well, our friends at BetterHelp, you know I'm talking about them all the time. 
And, uh, you know, I've been referring family, friends, patients. Uh, stress is up, that's right, and it shows up in all kinds of ways. And in a world that uh, is just demanding more of us and is more frustrating all the time, it's natural that our bodies would begin to reflect that stress. Well, sometimes it's important to take care of your brain to relieve that stress, and BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, even live chat sessions. So you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can be matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. Give it a try and see if online therapy can help you lower your stress. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp, and the Dr. Drew Podcast listeners get 10% off their first month at BetterHelp.com slash Drew. That is B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com slash Drew. Well, Calibrate, it works because it combines a doctor prescriptions, FDA-approved medication, Paired with lifestyle changes and overall, Calibrate will improve metabolic health. It's a comprehensive, integrated program. That's right. Calibrate's earliest members lost an average of 14% of their body weight. Over 20 years of research shows us that the combination of GLP-1 medication and coaching can improve metabolic health and drive long-term sustained weight loss. They can provide a comprehensive wellness plan personalized to your needs. Easily fit Calibrate into your schedule. Your goals are personalized and tracked by physicians and coaches. Your weight doesn't reflect your willpower. Get back in control with Calibrate. Get $50 off the one-year metabolic reset when you use promo code DREW at joincalibrate.com. That is $50 off when you use code DREW at joincalibrate.com. Bowling Branch, we love their sheets, love their towels. We love everything about them. The signature hem sheets from Bowling Branch are a bestseller for a reason. Highest quality threads, superior softness, sheets made with threads so luxurious they are beloved by three U.S. presidents. You'll immediately feel the difference with their iconic signature sheets. Bowling Branch sheets are labeled with top and bottom tags, so making your bed is easier than ever. And best of all, Bowl and Branch gives you a 30-night risk-free trial with free shipping and returns on all orders. We love Bowl and Branch. You will love them too. Get 15% off your first set of sheets when you use promo code Dr. Drew at bowlandbranch.com. That is Bowl and Branch, B-O-L-L-A-N-D, Branch, B-R-A-N-C-H.com, promo code D-R-D-R-E-W. Roman ED is more common than most men like to think. The benefits of ED treatment can help uh, help you reconnect with your, your partner. Roman Ready is confidence personified. Roman's system is completely confidential and totally discreet. With Roman, you get free online evaluation and ongoing care for ED, all from the comfort and privacy of your home. A U.S. licensed healthcare professional will work with you to find the best treatment plan. If medication is appropriate, it ships to you free with two-day shipping. The whole process is straightforward, convenient, and discreet. Getting started is simple. Just go to GetRoman.com slash Drew, complete an online visit, take care of your ED, and realize that sometimes it's important to get an evaluation. It can be more than just what you think it is. Complete that online visit today. Connect with a U.S. licensed healthcare professional and take care of it. Go to GetRoman.com slash Drew today, and if you're prescribed, get $15 off your first month of ED treatment. Make sure you're ready to have confidence and control this fall. Roman ready. I'm struggling with our behaviors versus our spiritual landscape, for lack of yeah. a better way to say it. It's psychosocial spiritual. It has to be. Yeah. Um, Biopsychosocial spiritual. Let, let me, I, my brain is overloading a little bit. Let's back away for a second, mm-hmm. just for me. Mm-hmm. 
explain to people what it's like to – people don't understand all the different kinds of psychotherapies and things out there. There's all kinds of psychotherapies and, and, and some people are really good at some and some people are really good at others. Let me just give – because I'm going to have you describe what psychoanalysis is like for you. Psychoanalysis is a – dare I say old-fashioned <laughs> technique. It, uh, it emanates from Freud but it's sort of mod- become more modernized as called relational psychoanalysis. I'm sure it's what you're in now. Where the, the the therapist and the and the patient are in a dance together, it's not just all about the patient, right? Is it? Mm-hmm. I mean, actually, oh, a hundred percent. Yeah, there's all transfers, kind of transfers. Yeah, yeah. And that's, there's a that's relational what, field. The, the relational field now is what's analyzed more than the patient. It's a much more accurate. And we and we like we're doing right here. We're yeah. co-creating a field. Correct. We're making and a so reality. interpersonal neurobiology, yeah. relational psychoanalysis. This is this limbic is the, resonance. There's all kinds of dude, weird things we don't even understand. My, you're you're yeah. talking my 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 jam. Yeah. Um, that's the future. Entrainment. And, and, oh yeah. That's, really this is this is where the real shit is. Yeah. Unfortunately, it's extremely time consuming. It's very costly, and in terms of treating mental illness, it doesn't it doesn't fit the models we need to treat right. mental. Illness. It's for somebody like you that wishes to like fully enlighten yourself, like fully develop yourself. I I am for it. I love it. I have a fantasy. I did deep psychoanalysis for a long time, which is another kind of. Sort of emotionally focused therapy, which is another kind of therapy. There's cognitive behavioral mm-hmm. therapies. There's dialectical behavioral therapies. There is just EMDR. You, if you want to know that, what is Anadel's uh, Gary? What number was Anadel's uh, podcast? And by the way, I've sent multiple people to her since, and she does. I have some friends who really benefit from it. Extraordinary, yeah. extraordinary benefits from EMDR. Um, but this is all different stuff. Uh, we should and should and should be, to be fair. There are different things with different goals and different for different circumstances. Uh, but we're going to indulge ourselves in psychoanalysis for a minute. So, so what is that like? What is that experience? Well, like? yeah, real so, fast, real fast. Four eighty four. Four eighty four is podcast. Our podcast four eighty four from June twenty twenty one. Thank you. So Freud invented it. Jung uh, kind of hold went, on a second. Twenty twenty one June. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Okay, sorry. Freud invented it. Freud invented it. Jung just calls it called it. Uh, Analysis, or I think originally he wanted to call it uh, complex psychology. He wanted to look at these complexes, um, and he kind of developed it out into a philosophy. He did you know, beyond uh, the patient situation. And he was really a mystic, and so did Freud. <clears throat> at the end of Freud's life, he actually said um, that I don't want to be a psychologist anymore. I want to be a philosopher, oh, really? and I want my patient to be the culture. And I resonate with that. Jung was kind what of doing that the whole time. I mean, you're doing Listen, that. Oh, dude, I, that was my. I, I didn't have that kind of grandiose intentions, but but I I remember when I first got involved in radio in 1983. My thought was, and I was doing it because of AIDS and HIV. That was yeah. my motivation. We we didn't have the term HIV yet, no. but I was seeing AIDS patients hand over fist, and uh, and I just thought, oh my god, it just looks to me like radio has been just such a powerful force for negative for drugs and alcohol and all this crazy behavior certainly it must be as good a force for turning it around doing something positive with it so that was my and you've done it and i was i was listening to you and adam i was just remembering on my drive here when i first moved here around 2003 i I love it and you helped so many people and we we tried yeah and you know that's what now we're being called creepy and weird and how dare we and white supremacist and part of the patriarchy well again it's the projection well and and ideal and child slaves i mean at least i can admit it (laughs) (laughs) right so but we're all pointing fingers and Uh, it's you're a hero everybody if you point a finger you're a hero right and do you really think that or, or you just feel bad about yourself and you have to make yourself into a hero by villainizing somebody Else. That's exactly right. Sick. And so that's what we're doing in, in – that's what I'm doing in analysis. I mean I'm trying to really – What does it feel uh, like to be in analysis? Help people with that. Well, 
the the, the analyst I have is great. He's how many days a week you go? Well, only once a week now. What? I know. It's supposed. To, I think they've done six days a week and stuff. Yeah, like that. Yeah, he's supposed so. to go three at least. I know. We're supposed to do sixty hours for school. And, okay. Uh, and well, my pa- let me just tell you the reason I asked is yeah. I'll, I'll turn over all my cards here. My patients that go into deep analysis uh, or, or peers will start showing up in my office going. Look, <laughs> I don't know if it's the analysis or if I'm sick, but, but I'm having this pain. Please just check it out so I can try to differentiate right. between whether I'm just having some weird transference or something uh, or do I really have a medical problem. Right. That you, can, you get so There's deep all the in sudden it. somatic symptoms and they can all start arising. Yeah, and, and you can't tell. Out. You right. can't tell what it is because you're in it. You're in this thing. Well, look at uh, dissociative identity disorder. I mean, uh-huh. you seem crazy, not insane. I mean, uh-huh. it's fascinating. And that is a result of extreme uh, childhood trauma. And like you talked about, the, the unconscious or the fracturing uh, kind of fracturing mm-hmm. and each alter will have often its own somatic symptomology too oh it's I've had patients like that that's different yeah. but that's because uh, they're, they're not in analysis usually but, so, but it feels the same when you're dealing with them as a, as a doctor Right, so. and so so both with Freud and Jung, they, you know, they're they're both practicing depth psychology, and what that means is they're concerned with the unconscious. That that uh, for for them, the ego is this little boat, you know, kind of bobbing along on this vast dark sea mm. that is the unconscious. That in the case of Jung, he called it the psyche. He called it the self with a capital S, and it guides us. And so what happens? So for example, and my interest would would align with this, and in my experience in analysis. This is what's happening in the second half of our lives, which is all Jung was uh, interested in. We start going through the process of individuation. And what that involves, among other things, is our personality type often begins to change in a process he called an, an antiodromia, which is a shift to the opposite. It's kind of a, almost a Hegelian thing. Um, so if I'm a, a thinking a uh, sensing person, I all of a sudden start becoming a feeling uh, intuitive person. He invented the, that personality type thing. I think the uh, Myers-Briggs people took it somewhere else. He, they'd approached him and said, hey, can we so, work together? But, so let's just say that, that personality is still a very fluid area of right. conversation. Right. They, and everybody, he, every field has their own way of talking about it. Uh, the, 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 the sort of um, – Academic psychologists really just talk about the big five traits, which I don't think does much of anything. You know, I'm right. saying the big five. You're and talking about the depths of the, the depth. Like Jung used it as self, a as selfness. It is, and it's yeah. our persona yeah. or it's it's yeah. our character. Yeah. And Jung used it as just a heuristic device to sort of talk about. And he That's says right. nothing's totally pure. Heuristic means just a construct. Exactly. Yeah. And then so, but what like codependency is just a construct, just ways of thinking about. Right. Things. It's yeah. hard to, to divide everything and create real categories because right. life is fluid. Well, but what brain. I what I found is. And it's been strange in the last like couple of years, but the the therapy has been a big part of this. I've started really feeling. I've started crying, mm-hmm. um, and I'm. It, it's making this shift. I was always so intellectual, mm. and all of a sudden I'm starting to feel. So it's a little uncomfortable. It's not always fun, um, but it's important, I think. And what's yeah. interesting, I, I think the culture, you know, Jung called it the spirit of our times, which is marked by science and rationality. Obviously, these are great things, but it's also missing its counterpart, which is feeling. Like we say, facts don't care about your feelings, like F your feelings or whatever. Feelings actually, even biologically or evolutionarily, might be these important guiding principles. Oh, like 100%. even 100%. However, right. I think when people are talking about feelings, 
They really don't even know what they're talking they about. Don't. That's the problem. We don't know how to name them. We've not. They're talking about anger and projection right. and hostility right. and aggression, and that's all they're ever talking about. What about grief? What about grief for you know the the environment or for our or fellow for yourself, human suffering? The self you left behind or right, whatever, right. some injured part of yourself. Right. This, uh, that's what they're avoiding. And that's actually one great thing. If my therapist has done, my analyst has done anything, he's helped me have compassion for the little boy mm. who I was. I had a, a bit of a difficult childhood myself. I would fall into that probably uh, adverse childhood experience mm. camp. I had problems with addiction later. Um, but actually, my parents met in 1969 at an outpatient clinic. Oh. Um, they there were artists. Go. They were intellectuals. They were highly intelligent, fascinating, colorful, funny people, and they had problems. But they glossed over all their problems with all that funny and intellect. Well, they probably did. And those, yeah. those are the defenses. That's what's happening now in the whole right. country. Right. We're glossing over yeah. it with ideology and bullshit. The, and the real pain, and the real pain is like, Ugh. and this is another thing Bob turned me on to, and I've never forgotten. He told me this eight years ago. There's kids in L.A. County, in the city of Los Angeles, who go to bed hungry at night. Mm. Like once you know that, like, I mean, I don't know. You, you To me, I, I was never the same after he told me that. Yeah, but – they go to bed hungry because their parents aren't taking care of them, not because they can't afford to eat. Well, it's a dollar I in, this, in this city to get a huge meal from Taco Bell, more than I need for a day. Well, I understand and that. And it's the, it's the caretaking that's absent. The parents are so shit out that they can't even feed their kids. And right. that's why they go ahead. And, and it's hard. And, 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 and there is extreme poverty in America. There's poverty. There's low income. There's a, lo- there's a world of low income people. 40% of Americans are trying to $400 for an emergency that, you know, oh, I, that's, yeah, a lot of that. It, it's a whole reality that we're not kind of often privy to. Um, and so, yeah, I'm sure they could, but, and also 500, uh, Thousand kids are taken from their families every year in America. Five hundred thousand, half a million. For what? For you would think abuse or whatnot. This is social services. This is social services, but it's often actually neglect, and it's often as as we know with a lot of these social problems, disproportionately people of color, and uh, that neglect comes from. Uh, these hard times. I mean, in some ways, we haven't left the sort of Victorian, you know, Dickensian uh, world where, you know, that's where they first uh, had the poor laws and there was vagrants. There was all these people being displaced by um, wars, famine, mm-hmm. you know, empire building, mm-hmm. uh, et cetera, et cetera. The first hospitals, really like Bedlam or the General Hospital in France, were built to treat all these displaced people. And veterans of the Crusades, and that's the birth of the asylum, and that we trace in the book is the history of where we are now. We start, of course, getting into asylum medicine, and as Thorazine was brought to market in May of uh, 1954, and it's kind of we've never looked back, um, but in a way we've never benefited. My mom Correct. was institutionalized uh, at least a dozen times as I was growing up. I, would, I didn't work in a psychiatric hospital, but I grew up in one in many ways. I would go there to visit her. Wow. She ended up taking her life when I was 14 in 1989, mm. but she had the benefit of all these modern, you know, medicines. And so to me, the, well, that's my, that's what drives me. There's something more going on. Yeah. The eighties though were just where people were getting their head around how to help with pharmacology. And now then we went way over the other direction where you're too much into the pharmacology. So in the remaining minutes, we got about ten minutes or so. Talk to me about the treatment program. I want to make sure we get to that. Thank you. Who who needs to go there? It seems like dual diagnosis is a major focus. Dual diagnosis is huge. Like anyone can kind of go to a twelve step treatment 
program, we just never felt good about that. It's something people can do for free. We'll take our clients there. They often find their own way there. Uh, in fact, we find that's more powerful. Mm. They'll, a few of them will say, hey, we found this great meeting, and they'll all just rally themselves and get to a meeting. But for us with you know what we bill insurance or what, we, what we're charging, um, ultra high-quality clinical care, evidence-based, had to be the name of the game. Mm-hmm. Of course, what we do and what Bob taught us was what we call the compassionate care model. We're cool with people. We're, we're kind with people. We really like all emulate Bob and you've seen him at work. Mm-hmm. You've seen what he does. We all strive to be that cool and kind. And then uh, we started in Malibu. And of course, that never sat right either, because of course, you know, not everyone can afford to go to Malibu. So we have actually an 18 bed in network facility in Mar Vista, and a uh, outpatient clinic and sober living in Silver Lake. Mm. And so, you know, if someone's got uh, Anthem Blue Cross, for example, they might have a $500, $1,000 deductible. They can be in treatment for 60, 90 days. Oh, as an outpatient or as an inpatient? Both. Oh, my God. Everything. The whole entire continuum. That's a big continuum. change. We didn't have that kind of access back to insurances yeah. back in the day. Yeah. They would, they would still have you out in a week. Right. Oh, my God. They're definitely cutting down. Some of, the, some of the Anthem plans, they're only allowing for about two weeks of inpatient. Okay. Well, by inpatient, no, no, no. They went, they'd want them out of inpatient, right. or actually inpatient Hospital. in three days, right. but then we'd put them in a residential setting. They'd want that 10 days, yeah. and then they'd push them into sober living and outpatient. Yeah, and we can start with partial hospitalization, which is basically day treatment and then intensive outpatient. Um, so we're having some pretty good luck, again, with the approach, which, of course, is basically Carl Rogers' unconditional positive regard and really uh, the, probably the most um, – Important evidence-based uh, practice is the therapeutic bond because mm-hmm. aside from any particular yeah. modality, therapeutic yeah. modality, it is the most important contributor to a positive outcome. I, and that's Bob Forrest. Uh, I've always said, well, I, I hope I had an impact on him in, you did. In, in training that because I always said our – you know, I had to deal with a lot of medical stuff and a lot of psychiatric stuff, getting people stabilized. I mean, their brains were not working or they may have been seizing or having congestive heart failure or God knows what. Um, so I'd have to get all that done. But aside from the, the – that was actually the easy part. The hard part I always thought was getting somebody and, and the necessary piece was getting somebody into the frame of closeness. Right. Because when you've been abused or abandoned or neglected, closeness is a dangerous place. Right. And in order to rebuild the self and rebuild the emotional regulation system, which is necessary to recover from a drug addiction, you you need other brains yeah. in, in a relational setting. Mm-hmm. Like you said, it's – would you say reality emer- reality comes out of relationships, yeah. but certainly the emotional systems do, and uh, and that's and I, all the Bowlby attachment theory and, 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 and Alan Shore yeah. and Peter Fonagy and and uh, and, and uh, Steve Porges and all this. We now know what the biology is, even, um, and so I would try to practice that. And if we could get them in and hold them in the frame, then they could transfer that out with their yeah. peers and their sponsor and other stuff and their therapist, hopefully. Now you got it. And now, into now the world we're... and imagine what a better world. I mean even uh, Carl Rogers believed that his, uncondition- his notion of unconditional positive regard, he was later in his life doing peace talks. He, he believed it could bring whole countries together. Yeah. And I wouldn't be surprised. I mean there's a strong uh, – I mean obviously I think everyone knows now World War II began because of the punitive nature of the Treaty of Versailles yep. in a way. Yep. Oh, not in a way. It was um, quite, quite directly related yeah. to that it, and, and the trauma of World War I. Mm-hmm. But, but – uh, the, when I think about our recovering addict patients and dual diagnosis patients, 
the one thing that they use in dealing with their dark side is humor because right. they are that helps you sort of connect to that dark yeah. piece and i think uh, it has a place it humor. can be a, it can be defense but it can be a way oh it in. can be yeah it yeah. can be but but i'm just thinking that this country i'm thinking about how we heal as a country like we we need to be able to t- take ourselves less seriously yeah. Well, yeah. and laugh at some of the bullshit but but right now we believe it's real. That's, that's the problem. That, and that's that theory of Winnicott's theory of, of, of narcissism. What people have kind of done with it is, yes, it's important. Yes, it can lead to confidence and creativity. But as long as we don't – and the way we create those bridges is by not taking ourselves too seriously. Exactly. It's the only but way to defeat narcissism. when you're a narcissist, narcissism. it's hard to not be there. You're, you're, I know. You're really at the core of narcissism is pain. Right. And pain keeps you self-focused. I mean, try, right. try hitting your finger with a hammer sometime and see if you don't think about yourself. Right, right. Uh, and that psychic pain is exact same way. That original injury as a child just sitting there festering. So, well, listen, um, this has been fun. Um, real quick before we sort of wrap up, uh, I did interview your wife uh, very back in the beginning days of this um, podcast, Alexis Haynes, yeah. and she's a recovering person too. And she she, is. she was part of the bling ring she uh, she when was. she was in her disease. Yeah, and it shows kind of where the disease takes you. And she was, I think, voted at her treatment center the least li- likely to succeed. So <laughs> there you go. How many times was she treated? Only once, but it was what? court ordered. She was looking at six years uh, in state prison. Ah, okay. There so you go. that's a bit of an incentive. Well, but there's a worse. You know, <laughs> motivated. This is when people accuse me of wanting to uh, to imprison uh, drug addicts. No, I want I want motivation. And your do- your wife had that motivation because mm-hmm. the court had a. You got to have a, a sword and a carrot. Yeah. You got to have both. I, I'm an alumni of LA County Jail myself, uh, as is Bob. And mm-hmm. you know he went to treatment 24 times. I went zero times. Um, I, I, it was an awful place, <laughs> and I never want to go back. Well, good. So, so that again, and if uh, has uh, has the Anthony Brown podcast aired at this point too? At least one of them has. Yeah, the he, last one. Yeah. I don't. I don't know for sure. By the time by the time people are listening, yes, yes. yes, but yes. So, so, if you want to hear some stories about how how cunning the addict, addicted brain can be, even in prison, but the prison does eventually catch your attention. Listening to that Anthony Brown uh, podcast. Well, did I miss anything? Is there anything else we need? To, it's oral recovery. Uh, Bob speaks very glowingly about it, mm-hmm. and I, I send people to him all the time. So you probably are seeing people mm-hmm. that I've sent through him or ORO Recovery dot com. Uh, again, the houses are in we have Silver Lake. Silver Lake. We have an outpatient clinic and a sober living. Mar Vista is our eighteen bed detox residential. Where's Mar Vista? Is that over by it's the airport? It's like uh, down Venice Boulevard. By the airport, sort of the end, end of. of Venice. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, sort of uh, below yeah, the, Venice. the Santa Monica Airport. Yeah, 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 yeah. Mm-hmm. below Venice kind of thing. Uh, okay, well, uh, if any, is there? A, mm, I guess we should send people to orrecovery dot com. I if think they have any so. Yeah, or anything. yeah, and they'll see our Malibu facilities, and and even then, if someone has like, uh, we, we love insurance because I mean that's what health insurance is for, right? So people would be surprised, uh, you know, what their insurance will. Cover. I'm surprised. Yeah. I'm surprised having worked many years with insurances and their restrictive nature. So that's mm-hmm. good. They're waking up to the. Mm-hmm. the, the First of all, their obligation, but secondly, the drug addicts cost them a lot more money if they the don't The Parity Act helped, I mean, to be able to treat. Yeah, I, I've been through three Parity Acts. Yeah. I'm, good, I'm glad to know that finally one helps. It seems to be working. So, they still try to back out of, of course. having to cover people, but of course. it's not as bad. Here's how, parody, here's how they always get out of Parity. Is it, it should be whatever the doctor says is needed right. to treat the patient. They do it on. That's what they do on the surgical side. That's what they do on the medical mm-hmm. side. Don't do that on the psychiatric side. And until they put that into the parity laws, it's it's never going to be actual parity. So, uh, so anyway, uh, be that as it may, uh, check out or recovery. Check out the book, Can America Recovery? I, I think you'll you get a sense how 
how complicated this field is when you really dig into it and how complicated our challenges are. However, on, on a large-scale basis, the solutions tend to be sort of uh, dramatic and and, and um, not so complicated True. when we yeah. find our way out. There's they, a beautiful simplicity. I mean, simplicity, being kind to other for. people, for yeah. example, not yes. – pointing our fingers and so much anymore. Exactly. But sometimes they have to scapegoat in order to manage that aggression before they can start to think about the golden rule. My friend, thank you. It is uh, Evan Haynes. You can follow him, as I said. It's Evan Haynes, H-E-I-N-S, and Evan's E-V-A-N. At Instagram, it's Evan Haynes. And then, of course, oralrecovery.com. Thank you, sir. Thanks, Dr. Drew. We'll see you all next time. For calling times and topics, follow the show on Twitter at Dr. Drew Podcast. That's D-R-D-R-E-W Podcast. The music from today's episode can be found on the swinging sounds of the Dr. Drew Podcast, now available on iTunes. And while you're there, don't forget to rate the show. The Dr. Drew Podcast is a Corolla Digital production and is produced by Chris Loxamana and Gary Smith. For more information, go to drdrew.com. All conversation and information exchanged during the participation in the Dr. Drew Podcast is intended for educational and entertainment purposes. Only. Do not confuse this with treatment or medical advice or direction. Nothing on these podcasts supplement or supersede the relationship and direction of your medical caretakers. Although Dr. Drew is a licensed physician with specialty board certifications by the American Board of Internal Medicine and the American Board of Addiction Medicine, he is not functioning as a physician in this environment. The same applies to any professionals who may appear on the podcast or drdrew.com. Stream the biggest movies and TV shows for free on Pluto TV. Watch movies like Titanic and G.I. Joe The Rise of Cobra, plus TV shows like CSI and Star Trek The Next Generation. Starting this month, check out the 24-7 Stargate channel exclusively on Pluto TV, plus hundreds of channels and thousands of movies and TV shows absolutely free. Download the free Pluto TV app on your favorite streaming device and start watching today.